One of the great parts of my job is being able to introduce Talmud uh, Chachamim and guest speakers to our yeshiva. By coincidence or otherwise, it almost always turns out that I know the person. In this case, I don't really. Meaning, I know Rabbi Leibowitz the way everybody else knows Rabbi Leibowitz, by his shiurim and by his presence on the internet. And in that way, I think it makes me objective. When you listen, you know, and I asked myself, I've watched it over time, how Rabbi Leibowitz's reputation has, like, skyrocketed. And I asked myself, why does that happen? So I think it happens for the same reasons it happened to me. For example, I would have seen Rabbi Leibowitz is a very skinny man. You know why? He goes running with me. A lot. Now, he doesn't know this. Well, my guess is he runs with hundreds of people. Because when you go and you ask yourself, what am I going to listen to if I want to listen to something now, generally it falls into one of two categories. One thing of great substance, or something that's very inspirational. But when you get both at the same time, and people who haven't heard of will see today, it's not just great bikiyas and being able to lay out a complicated sugya. But Rabbi Leibowitz's love of Talmud Torah and his love of Jews and his love of Akashvaku, it comes through in complicated sukkis in a way that's very rare. And so it's a huge opportunity to us to hear the substance, but to also be inspired by real, I don't say real Talmud Torah, but real love of Talmud Torah. It's a really unique thing, and it's our great schos, Rabbi Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And it's, uh, you know, someone asked me yesterday, I was in uh, Shalvin for Shabbos, and uh, one of the Talmidim who knows me and knows that, you know, I'm not particularly uh, intelligent, said to me, like, do you ever, like, pinch yourself? Like, how did you get to this point? Like, you know, considering, he didn't say that, but like, you know, considering, like, who you are, like, how did you manage to, like, you know, finagle away into, like, a rabbi, like, going around, giving shiurim? I said, yeah, all the time, but, like, particularly when I'm in Gush, because, like, uh, to, to speak to this level of Talmidim, when you're used to the kind of shiurim that you're used to, the kind of uh, rebellion that you're used to, the kind of influences in your life that you're used to, um, it's really uh, just a tremendous, tremendous kavod to be here, and I appreciate that you all uh, took the time to, uh, I don't know if you have a choice, but I appreciate that you all took the time to be able to come, uh, to come learn some Torah together. So, um, each year I ask, uh, I, I ask Rav Friedman, Rav Levi Friedman, Rav Yonatan Shai Friedman, I ask them, what, what, what topics should I talk about when I'm here? And uh, I think the vote has been to just uh, present interesting Shilohs that have come up and then see what we can do to try to uh, show how we go about answering some of the more interesting questions that, that come up. Because when you're in Rabbanus, people ask questions, and question, real-life questions are far more interesting than anything you can make up. And that's why Shiloh Chuba's farm are so fascinating. Because you can't, you can't make this stuff up. No one's creative enough to make up the kinds of things that happen in real life. So may, maybe we'll do it like this. I, w- I mean, I could have stopped at 620, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll play it by ear, I guess. I can't now. now I have to go. Okay, so I will, um, I'll present to you three questions, let's say. And you'll tell me which ones you want to talk about. Maybe we'll even have time to talk about all of them. But I'll, I'll present to you three questions that came up, actual questions that came up. First question came up was a few months ago. Uh, I would say, uh, when did it come up? Probably uh, around April, May, so more than a few months ago. Uh, a guy calls me up, and this fellow is uh, a person I've never met before. He lives in Northern California. He lives in the Palo Alto, uh, San Jose area. Anyone from that area here? 
Good, okay, so we can maintain the anonymity of this person, he's very tsunua, and he would prefer it that way, so good, I'm glad that no one from that area of the country is here. From Northern California, this fellow is a Svartic Balchuva. Now, not to overgeneralize Svardim nor Balechuva, but both Svardim and Balechuva tend to be a little more tamimistic, a little more sincere than your typical Ashkenazi New Yorker from, from birth guy like me, right? They tend to just have like that little extra sweetness, a little extra sincerity. You know what I'm talking about, you don't have to admit it. But they, that's, <laughs> so this guy fits that mold perfectly. Super sweet, super sincere. Um, just absolutely tamimistic. I don't know if there's an exact word in English to translate that, but, but that, that's what this, this fellow is. Uh, how did he get to me? So I have a brother. I only have one brother. My brother is a Rosh Kolel in Northern California, and uh, my brother is an enormous Tamil Chacham. Um, f- enormous Tamil Chacham. So normally when I have a difficult Shaila, it goes to him, but uh, in this case, and this I think is the only case in all of the years that we've been brothers, which is now 41, in this case, uh, he sent this Shaila to me for whatever reason. So the, uh, the fellow asked the following. Um, my brother gave me the background of this fellow. A year ago, this fellow was driving an Uber for a living. Um, not the most um, lucrative profession, I guess we would say. And uh, while he was driving an Uber around Northern California, he was struck with a business idea. An idea that if he would have presented to me and said, should I do it, should I not do it, I would have said, terrible idea. You're not going to make any money. But he, he was struck with the idea, I'm going to re-insulate attics in the Northern California area. Now, I would think that's a, the, the worst idea ever because the weather's always beautiful. No one cares about insulation in Northern California. But lo and behold, a year later, he's making millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars. He's got this booming business. And as this sincere person who wants to show gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what does he do? He, first thing he does is he finds every unemployed Orthodox Jew in the vicinity, in the local area, and he hires them to work for him. So he employs a whole bunch of people. Next thing he does, what do you do? You want to show a curse of Tzedakah, all of a sudden you're making a lot of money, you're doing very well. What, what, what do you do? Tzedakah. So, but there's a max. How much are you allowed to give? Maximum is chomesh. He gives he gives a chomesh twenty percent. He knows he's not allowed to give more. Although Mari Rabbi Rav Shachter uh, tells us all the time, uh, he's said it more than once that he gives about fifty percent of his money to tzedakah. So I once called him out on it. You know, I, I have to tell you, Rabbi, it's usher, right? You're, you're not allowed to do that. And uh, he says no. There's an exception because an usher muflag is allowed to give more than twenty percent of his money to tzedakah. Someone who's extremely wealthy, like if uh, we used to use Bill Gates as the example, I guess Jeff Bezos now. So if Jeff Bezos were to give, uh, you know, a, I don't know, I don't know what he's worth. I don't know. I can't even imagine what the numbers are. But let's say if he were to give. 25% of his money to tzedakah, he still might have what to eat, right? He still, he still might be okay. So you're, if you're in that position, and Rav Shachter defines himself to be in that position, I don't know if he owns an automobile, but he uh, <laughs> defines himself to be an usher muflag, and therefore he gives an exorbitant sum of money. Uh, he gives uh, a, a, an extremely high percentage of his salary. Maybe he is. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't know what, why you pay. <laughs> maybe they pay that much. So so, uh, so, so this fellow, he gives 20% of the money. He said, great, fantastic. Uh, now he decides it's still not enough. He's hired everybody. He's uh, been... He wants to do more. So what's your next move? What do you do next? 
he's doing more than Meiser. He's doing twice as much as Meiser. He's giving 20%. Become a Balchuva? He's already a Balchuva. <laughs> Build a shul. Build a shul is a nice idea. So, yeah? Anything else? I just want to see, like, where this guy's head is at versus where you... Yeah? Start a chesed organization. A kollel. Okay, good. So you support tefila, you support chesed, you support Torah. Fantastic. You know, you have all the amudei olam, Torah, vodeg milz chasadim. We just covered it right here in this triangle right here. Torah, vodeg milz chasadim. This fellow decided he needs to, like, do something very tangible for another Jew, and therefore he decides he wants to donate a kidney to save a Jewish person's life. He has to give a kidney for the sake of HaKadosh Baruch Hu being so kind to him. That's what he decided to do. And he wanted to save a Jewish person's life. So he was planning, he figured if you want to save a Jew's life, you've got to go where the Jews are. So he's going to come to Israel. Right? Uh, he has no family in Israel, no friends in Israel, no connections in Israel. He's going to come to Israel, donate a kidney, recuperate here by himself in a hotel room for a couple of weeks, and then go home and continue on with his life. That's his plan. He tells his plan to somebody. Someone says, uh, there's an organization in America that arranges for kidney donations amongst uh, Jewish people. Why don't you just contact them? He's like thrilled. He didn't know this. Now he doesn't have to go to Israel and be by himself and recuperate by himself. Fantastic. He has a wife. He has kids. So now, now he's, he's very happy. He calls up the organization. It's called Renewal. It's run by a bunch of Hasidim. It's a fantastic organization. He calls them up and they say... Um, they say, uh, yeah, sure, just, uh, you know, we'll be happy to take your kidney, no problem, as long as you're uh, healthy enough. Uh, just, uh, just tell us, uh, do you have a preference? He said, yes, I prefer to give my kidney. They said, no, no, like, do you want to give it to a man, a woman, a Tamchacham Nama Aretz, a Kohina Levi Yisrael, an adult, a child? Like, it's, it's your kidney, you could do whatever you want with it. And he said, oh, I never thought of that. Like, that's, that's an option. Is there, is there something you're supposed to do? So he asked my brother that Shaila, my brother sent that Shaila to me. Okay, so that is Shaila number one. Should a person have a preference? That was a long way of saying, should a person have a preference when, uh, when asked that question? I'll just juxtapose that with another question I got, and we'll, we'll count this as one Shaila. Uh, I'll juxtapose it with another question I got just before Yom Kippur. Uh, it's not going to be story time the whole time. I know you're interested in actual Torah also. Uh, ju- just before, uh, before Yom Kippur, I got a phone call from a woman in uh, North Woodmere. And uh, North Woodmere is where I live. Um, it's not in the five towns. It's just north of the five towns. So any uh, stereotypes you've heard about the five towns don't apply to me and uh, my neighborhood. So uh, we're South Valley Stream. So, any, uh, so, so I got a phone call from a woman in the neighborhood. She had gotten swabbed, a cheek swab. I'm sure many of you may have done this uh, to see if she's a bone marrow match for anybody um, a, a while ago. And she got a call back which is very exciting because it's an opportunity to save a life. So she was very eager to do so. This woman does not dive in my shul, but she called me because someone had told her that, that I was a bone marrow donor once also, which I was. About five, six years ago, I had the opportunity to save a life um, doing it as well. It's very easy. It used to be that they would stick a needle in your back and it would be like this painful procedure. Now you just sit there like this, you know, for like seven hours with one needle in this arm, one needle in that arm, and you just have to sit for seven hours. So I remember I brought, I think my son Yona, who's now Shana Bet, in Shalvim, I think he was, uh, I don't know, in eighth grade at the time, and I brought him along with me. My wife uh, didn't want to come, so I brought Yona along with me, and they said, you brought a kid? I said, yeah, someone's got to hold the iPad, right? So, uh, so 
he was uh, he was like my slave for seven hours while I while I was immobile. I just could I had to sit there like this. But you're totally conscious and fine, and it's just like you know, the blood comes out of one arm, it goes through a machine where magic happens, and then it goes then it goes back into the other arm, and they take the magical stuff and they put it in the patient, and voila, he's uh, he or she is uh, all better. I think that's the technical medical description <laughs> of the procedure. That's uh, that that's what happens. So this woman has this opportunity. She's called back to go through this procedure. So she asked them, uh, when, when am I supposed to do it? When do you have in mind? Now, the timing of this procedure is critical. Timing is absolutely critical. Because specifically, not so much for kidney donations, but specifically for bone marrow donations, for stem cell donations, it's, uh, they have to wipe out the, the recipient's immune system. And when you wipe out a person's immune system, because they have to be a new immune system. So when you wipe out the recipient's immune system, uh, it's extremely dangerous. Because they catch a cold at that time, they could die. Like, it's, it's extreme. So timing is very important. Because they have to time it just when their system is wiped out. That's when they, they, uh, they do the donation, and that's when... So they said to her, they gave her a date in September. <coughs> and the woman looks at her calendar and sees that the date is Erev Yom Kippur. And as it is, she has a very hard time fasting. She's, she's in bed the whole day, Yom Kippur. She, she gets these migraines. She has a very, very difficult time fasting as it is. And now to have to go through this the day before Yom Kippur, so she said to them, please, can we do it a week earlier? And the, the doctor said, look, if you tell me that you're not going to do it unless you can do it a week earlier, fine, we'll do it a week earlier. But I have to tell you, when we freeze it, you know, because doing it a week earlier means we'll extract it a week earlier, but then we're going to freeze it, we're going to freeze the stem cells and, and hold on to it for a week, nothing is quite as good as the fresh product. It's not, it's not the same, but you're the, you're the person's only match. You're their best chance of survival. So we'll take it if you do it a week earlier, but really not ideal. That's what, uh, that's what they told her. So now, what's her question? What's her question? Should she do it a week earlier? Should she do it a week later? And if she does it on Erev Yom Kippur, does she have to fast, right? That's her, her shayla. So we'll juxtapose those two questions because we'll see that they, they may dovetail. They may uh, connect in some way, some way or another. Okay? Because that was shayla number one. Okay? So shayla number two. By way of introduction to question two, I have the great privilege on, on Fridays during the springtime, since I've made the transition from teaching in high school to teaching at the college level. So in high school, they have shir on Fridays. Uh, for some reason, the minigin yeshivas here and in America, I don't know if it's the minig here, but at least it's, a, no, not the minig here, Baruch Hashem, is that there's no yeshiva on, uh, on Fridays. So, uh, so I'm off, which uh, gives me the opportunity to uh, prepare for Shabbos, but it also, during the springtime, when it's a long era of Shabbos, gives me the opportunity to go to the OU office, where uh, Mari Varabi, of Herschel Schechter, sits all day on Friday, answering the world's shilas. It's essentially what happens. All the Rabbanim from the OU save up all their shilas from the whole week, mostly related to Kashrus, but really about anything. And uh, he sits in an office in the back of the uh, OU offices, and they just come in one after the other, uh, asking their shilas, and he has a phone with him, and the phone is ringing off the hook the entire time, and he's just uh, answering the world's shilas for hours. And sometimes he likes to talk over some of the issues with uh, other Rabbanim. Um, so a group of us go uh, each Friday, most Fridays, and we, we, uh, you know, we spend time with them. So what's happened is a lot of people know that we're there, so a lot of people will send us shilas during that time to bring to Rav Shachter. So here's what happened with that backdrop. Uh, I got a, uh, uh, an email during that time on a Friday morning from a friend of mine who's a, who's a rabbi, and he told me that he knows a woman 
who is a doctor who works in the United States but lives in Israel. This is a very apparently popular thing to do. When I came just Thursday evening, initially they put me on the 8.50 p.m. flight on Thursday. I said, that's nice, I'm not getting on that plane. So they moved me back to the 6.30 flight. So when I came on, on Thursday, um, I, um, I, was, I, I got through security in JFK, and, uh, and someone said, oh, Rabbi Leibowitz, come with me to the first-class lounge. You can bring one guest. So, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and then when I was there, like, I saw this whole chavr. Like, I knew it. Now I know. Every time I go to Israel, I just hang out there until someone comes. Then I know. Like, the, the, there's this, all these people that have made aliyah that, you know, fly back and forth. Every, so they don't all get to fly first-class, but they get to go into the, into the lounge. So there's, like, a common thing to do, to go back and forth and to work. So this woman does that. She goes back and forth. She's working as a doctor, as a physician in Idaho. Idaho. Apparently that's where she got the best, uh, best salary. So that's where she's working. She was supposed to try to catch a flight back to her on Thursday. Something got messed up. She missed it. She's stuck in Idaho for Shabbos. And uh, she has only one cup of grape juice. She, has, she found some, chal- some challah rolls, but she has one cup of, uh, of grape juice uh, for Shabbos. And now she's got Friday night Kiddush, Shabbos day Kiddush, and Abdullah to deal with. What should she do with her one cup of grape juice? That was Shaila number two, so a little simpler than Shaila number one. Shaila number three was an email I got from a fellow who I don't know, um, and it says as follows. I'll read you the exact words of the email. Rabbi Leibowitz, before I begin, I would like to ask you to please not use this, Shaila, for a year, but then he changed his mind. <laughs> I emailed him back. Why not? You know, so I won't give away. He writes, I'm a yeshiva bachur in high school. And when I was younger, I didn't really understand how terrible Gazela was. I might have taken certain things from people or, or money. <coughs> My guess is it's more than might have. <laughs> probably did. And, and I also may have lied about the number of hours I learned for the Masmidim program in my elementary school to get certain prizes and trips. I remember, that, I remember having that experience in elementary school when they had these, um, these, uh, these contests. And I remember like the kid came in with, like, I learned... 26 hours yesterday. Like, <laughs> and, and aside from that, you've never even sat in class for 26 minutes straight. <laughs> it's not even possible. But, you know, what are you going to say? You call the kid a liar, then he gets all indignant, and, you know, <laughs> how could you call me a liar? You know? So Okay, so he, he lied about, and he won these prizes and trips. Since then, I've realized how terrible stealing is, and I would like to do tshuva. I want to ask a few shaylas. Number one, do I have to ask Mechila directly, or can I send someone money anonymously? Number two, do I have to do it as soon as possible, which would entail me embarrassing myself by having to ask my parents to take money out of my bank account, or can I use spending money that I accumulate over some amount of months? Number three, if I may use accumulated spending money, does all the money I have as spending money have to be saved for this repaying purpose, or can I spend some of it for other things as well, even before I pay back everyone who I owe money to? Meaning, do I have any leeway whatsoever to spend as I, as I would like? Uh, I mean, can I buy myself a soda before I pay back every penny of what I've stolen as a child? So this is Shaila number, number three. So again, the first Shaila is the choosing his uh, kidney recipient slash bone marrow case. Second Shaila is the one cup of grape juice for Kiddush. And the third Shaila is doing tshuva for stealing as a child. Okay, which one do you want to talk about? You just say one, two, or three. One, 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 one,
Shabbos Day Kiddush, Friday Night Kiddush, Daraisa Drabanan, Mink Kiddush Lachala, which is an option Friday night, may not be an option Shabbos Day. Right, you go through all of these, all, all these thought processes, right? Uh, we asked Shach, he said, just go to the supermarket, buy some grapes and squeeze them. What? So you know how many grapes she'd have to buy? Squeeze a grape juice. So, so, but then, then I realized he wasn't just stand saying that because when you speak to a Talmud Chacham of that caliber, everything that they that they say is, is based on some maramakam. This is a beferish gemara in the Sabbath Basra. The gemara when it talks about whether you need to wait for wine to ferment in order to be able to use it for kiddush says. You can be so and then the Kaddish of Ayom. You can be, you can just squeeze grapes and they say Kiddush on the freshly squeezed, squeezed grapes. So he was just saying, you know, <laughs> he was just saying the, uh, what, the, what the Gemara says. Probably, again, not the most practical aid, so, but uh, that, that's what he had suggested. We suggested something else, but we're not going to get into that child now. Okay, so we'll start with child number one. So the, the Spartak Balchuva fellow from uh, Northern California was asked by renewal. Who do you want to give your kidney to? Um, so, first things first. Before we decide who he's going to give his kidney to, what's the first thing we have to, we have to deal with? Is it what to give a kidney, right? Is it meaning, uh, you know, I'm walking down the street and I see another guy walking toward me and he doesn't have a head, right? And he says, excuse me, sir, can I have your head? I don't have a head. Oh, sure, decapitate me. No problem. Like, uh, there's a good chance I could die if you decapitate me. So that, that's not, uh, I don't know how would that guy manage, but there's a, so uh, that's not, not, not so pasha that you could just uh, give a kidney. Right? So, is it much? I'll tell you something. In the 1960s, Min Chasitzchak wrote a tshuva, Dain Weiss wrote a tshuva, where he writes that it's awesome that you're not allowed to give a kidney. In the 1980s, Tzitzel uh, and Rav Vadia wrote tshuvas, where they start to say, Mutter slash mitzvah. In uh, 2012, Rav Asher Weiss wrote a tshuva where he said, Mitzvah karov l'chiyuv. And according to reports that I've heard, but I've never seen the tshuva inside, there's a Satra Dayan in Antwerp who wrote a tshuva sefer called Vaya'an David, where he writes that it's a chiyuv to give a kidney, which means that as soon as we finish, everyone should uh, go to uh, your local hospital and uh, donate your kidney to, right? That, that's the, uh, the, the, apparently the sheet of uh, this, this Dayan in Antwerp. I went to try to find the tshuva. It's not in Hebrew books. I went to Beagle Island in Brooklyn. If you know this store, it's like this amazing store where it's the size of maybe like that corner of the room, but it has every safer in the world somehow. It's, it's, the, the place is, uh, is a miracle. It's like you know, it's like somehow it all the, the, all of Torah fits in that, in, that, in that room, and you ask for any Sefer, and they all of a sudden they say, here, like right away. Like, it, 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 it's chaos. Like, there's no order to anything, but they know how to find it. So I asked for Vayan David. They said, oh, he wrote nine volumes. Here, 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 here. And they gave me four of the volumes. Uh, none of those four volumes had this tshuva that I was looking for. A lot of other very nice tshuvas. He writes very nicely. But uh, none, of, none of them had the, uh, the tshuva that I was looking for. So, but you have 1960s, 1980, Minchas Rav Vadya and uh, Tzitzel Yezer, and then you have Rav Asher Weiss, and perhaps even this uh, other Rav Weiss uh, who wrote, writes that it's a chiv. When I asked the people from Renewal if they were aware of this tshuva from this Dayan in Antwerp, they said, uh, yes, we're still waiting for his application. Um, the, <laughs> so the, the, so is, is this a machlokas necessarily? Is this a machlokas? What's that? Ah, so it, it not it could be it did it, it definitely got safer as time went on. 
meaning it used to be a very complicated surgery, and they weren't sure of how safe it was. By now, it's about as uh, dangerous as getting your tonsils taken out. It's, it's not a very dangerous surgery. In fact, they now say that a kidney donor typically has a longer life expectancy than the general population. Slightly longer. It's expected to live slightly longer than the general population. So, how do you, what's shot in that? Like, how does that, the schus of the mitzvah will protect him and will allow him to live longer? That's the firm interpretation, but that's not the correct interpretation. The correct interpretation is they don't take kidneys from just anybody. You have, if you're obese, if you have heart problems, if you have a history of kidney disease, they're not, they don't want your kidney. They're only taking it if you are in perfect health. So obviously, if you take a subset of the population that's in perfect health, they're obviously going to live longer than the rest of the population. Okay, but still, it seems to be an extremely safe thing to do. Okay, good. So now, is it a chiv to do? So what's, what's the issue over here? Pikuach nefesh, I would say, pikuach nefesh, docha kola Someone else's life is at stake. Now, it's true. They can go on dialysis and uh, they have a 30% chance of surviving for five years on dialysis. So they're not dying right now, necessarily. And with a kidney, they, uh, they won't have to be on dialysis and they'll live a regular, healthy, normal life for, you know, for let's say, 15 more years before they're going to need another kidney. But that, that's, uh, that's, that's typically how it works. So it's, 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 that's pikuach nefesh. That's not chayi sha'a. That's chayi olam. When you're giving a person 15 years of life, that's, that's not chayi sha'a. I mean, we're all, all of our lives are, uh, are, are, are limited, right? So, so giving someone 15 years of life is significant. So, is there any svara to say that you wouldn't have to do it? Now, let's say it were dangerous. Let's say it were a suffix pikuach nefesh for yourself. So, for suffix pikuach nefesh for yourself, do you, do you have to go through suffix pikuach nefesh in order to save somebody else? No. Oh, so, there is a, a gemara in Bamitzia, famous gemara in Bamitzia, that talks about uh, a, a, a famous case I'm going to start to say, and then you'll all immediately click and you'll say, oh yeah, I know that. The, the Gemara talks about two people walking in the desert, and there's only one canteen of water, right? So, and that water is enough to allow one of them to survive, but not both of them. So, Machlokas ben Petura and Rabbi Akiva, where Ben Petura says, split it, you got to split the water and they'll both die, but you can't watch somebody else die. Achabar Rabbi Akiva believed, Rabbi Kiva says, Your life comes before somebody else's life. So if you have the water, drink it. You don't have to use that, some of your water that, that you need to sustain your own life to save somebody else. But that Gemara is about your life, Vadai, versus somebody else's life, Vadai. You're going to die or he's going to die. So you don't have to choose him. You can choose yourself if you have that water already. What the Gemara does not talk about is suffix sakana. What if I'm in it? It's not, I'm not vada going to die. The surgery might kill me. I think currently the, uh, the numbers are 1 in 5,000 kidney donors die from the surgery itself. 1 in 5,000, which is about the same rate as the most minor surgeries. Anytime anyone goes into surgery, you're taking at least that risk, just from the anesthesia, from anything. So 1 in 5,000, that is not a statistically significant risk. I realize that for that one guy, it is significant, but it is not a statistically (laughs) significant risk. So 1 in 5,000. But let's say you weren't 1 in 5,000. Let's say you were 2,500 in 5,000. So you're a 50-50. But that guy's definitely going to die if he doesn't get it. So this is a machlok, it's supposed to be the base. Yosef quotes Yerushalmi. 
where the Beis Yosef says that you're mechayiv to do it, based on Yerushalmi. It's unclear exactly where that Yerushalmi is, and it's Siv has a suggestion, they work on it exactly to try to figure out where is this phantom Yerushalmi that says that you have to do this, that you have to put yourself... They, they say, Rav Shabtarayz and Sharab, that Rav Chaim held this way la'alacha, that savik, you have to put yourself in Savik Kuach Nefesh in order to save somebody else's life. Nevertheless, most poskim seem to assume like the Shita of the Radvaz. The Radvaz writes in the Tshuva that if someone puts himself through Savik Kuach Nefesh in order to save someone else's life, he is a Chassid Shota. What's a Chassid Shota? Very nice guy, but a moron. He's a fool. He shouldn't do that. You're not supposed to do that. He's going beyond what he's supposed to do. You have to, you have to live. You have to protect your own life. That's if you have a situation of Safik Bikoach Nefesh. But even within Safik Bikoach Nefesh, it's, it's within reason how to define Safik Bikoach Nefesh. Rav Ashmarais points out that Radvaz himself has other chuvas where he says that you're obligated to put yourself in Safik Bikoach Nefesh in order to save someone's life. Why? Because there are different levels of Safik. You know, imagine I'm a trained physician, let's say. I, didn't, I did not make my mother's dream come true. I did not become a doctor. So, I, but I'm, so I'm not a trained physician. But imagine I was. And I'm walking down the, the street and I see on the other side of the street there's someone who's having some sort of medical episode where they need medical attention or they will die. I know how to provide that medical attention to them. I'm able to help them. But it will involve crossing the street. And people die every day in this country crossing the street. In every country, people die every day crossing the street. There are these two-ton vehicles made of metal that go at high speeds across those streets. So do I have to cross the street? Now, I'll say, look, I'm happy to treat them if they can get over here. But I'm not going to go over there to treat them. So obviously that's ridiculous, because that is not considered a situation of even suffix. So there does seem to be some point where you say, you know what, it's not even. It's not even suffix because nefesh. So the, the question then adds itself. Is everyone obligated? Meaning maybe the Satra dying in Antwerp is correct. Now Rav Weiss, for his part, says, uh, you know, if not that I was afraid of what everyone else would tell me, I would have suggested it's a chiyuv, and it's karov chiyuv, and, you know, he uses very strong lashon. So I asked Rav Asher, because thank God we have an opportunity, you know, he's very accessible, so we have an opportunity to talk to him. So I asked Rav Asher, well, well, let's say you have a case where uh, a man wants to donate a kidney and his wife says, absolutely not. Would, would you tell him to do it? So Rav Asher Weiss said, of course not. He can't do it if his wife's not going to be supportive of it. So I said, okay, what if you have a case where a man um, wants to put on tefillin every day, and his wife says, no, I love animals, you know, you know they kill animals to get those things, I'm not, no way, you're not allowed to put on tefillin every day. Would, would, he, would he be obligated to put on tefillin every day? And the answer, of course, yes, right? Why? Because it's not really a chiv to give a kidney. It is a chiv to, uh, to put on tefillin every day. Right, meaning you can use the lashon karav l'chiyuv just to express how nice it is, how good it is, how wonderful it is. Uh, it's not really a chiyuv to, to, to do it. But why not? Why isn't it a chiyuv? Meaning it's pikoach nefesh. And it's, it's minimal risk. Minimal risk. So don't give me a svarah. Why isn't it a chiyuv? I'm going to talk through this one. I'm not, I'm not going to be deterred. So <laughs> why, why isn't it a chiyuv? Why isn't it a chiyuv? Oh, we're all going to donate kidneys. Yeah. I think a chayv koach nefesh would only be if you happen to be in that situation, but you don't have to put yourself in the situation. What do you mean by that? Put yourself. 
Meaning, there's no obligation for everyone to become a doctor to then go save people's lives. Okay, but become... if you are a doctor and someone's having a heart attack, then you're very interesting, Sarah. You don't have to go to medical school to become a doctor so that you can save lives. That's a reasonable svara, very interesting svara. But the thing is, coming a doctor takes seven years of uh, hard work. This does not, it does not take that amount of time. It's one moment of time. And you know that there are people in need. The waiting list is much longer. If you speak to the people at Renewal, they will tell you the waiting list is much longer than the list of people that are willing to, to give. So there's a need right before that. It's right in front of you. All you need to do is open your eyes. Or, or, let's say, let's say we accept your svara. There's someone in your community that you're aware of, and they're doing a drive to, uh, to, to get people tested in order to save this person in your community. So would you say that anyone who doesn't volunteer is doing an isser, is doing a veira, because you have a chiyuv to, to save this person's life? Right? Meaning, you know, so I'm saying, like, in, in that case, I guess that, that's probably the better, the better argument. My second argument is better than my first, I would say, right? Meaning, there's someone right in front of you, right, that, that has that need. So any other suggestions? Why is it in a field? Why wouldn't it be a field? And they can, they can get other people to donate kidneys. Good. So he said they can survive on dialysis for a while, and someone else can donate a kidney at some point along, along the way. I mean, who says that it has to be you? That was my svar. My svar was that... Uh, DRS might think like that. My svara was that, that, that it, you know, I'll give you a mushroom. A guy came to my door a couple, uh, last year on a Sunday evening when you're a rabbi, particularly when you're a rabbi in the five towns, Sunday afternoons and evenings are very busy. A lot of knocking on the door and a lot of people with terrible, terrible life situations. Terrible stories. I have 12 children and uh, six of them are sick and uh, we can't pay the medical bills. And, you know, terrible, terrible stories. <laughs> the wrong switch. Terrible. <laughs> I feel like we should have a crimson. Yeah. <laughs> some, some, some absolutely terrible stories that, 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 that come my way. A guy comes into my, uh, to my office. He's... he's He's skinny. He tells me that he has leukemia, and he looks like he looks like he has one foot in the grave, to be to be honest. And he says that he has medications that are no longer covered by kupat cholim. I don't know why they're no longer covered by kupat cholim, but he says his medications are going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for him to be able to survive the year. So hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars accessible to me, but then it occurs to me, I sort of do have hundreds of thousands of dollars accessible to me, because I live in North Woodmere, <laughs> and, and in North Woodmere, I have a house that I own in North Woodmere, and according to the newspaper and all the people that are selling houses in North Woodmere, my house is worth like $850,000. So why don't I just sell my house Give this guy the 250 grand that he needs, and then I'll still have enough money left over to buy a decent apartment. And, you know, my family may not be super thrilled with me about that, about that idea. They may not be super happy about it, but, you know, they'll adjust. You know, my sister lives in Ramana Shkol with ten children in, in three bedrooms. It used to be two bedrooms, but they cut one in half, so now it's three, right? So that's how they do expansions here. So then they, and, and they seem to be pretty happy. They're okay, so you know, maybe I should sell my house. So what would you say? Am I obligated to sell my house in that circumstance? No. No. Why not? 
I, why, why don't I have to sell my house? I, the guy's going to die. I'll tell you the truth. I, this haunted me. I obviously I did not sell my house. And it haunted me. I couldn't sleep for nights. I was thinking, oh my God, did I just kill this guy? I tried to connect him to doctors, see if we can find the medication in some other way in the United States. I tried to do <laughs> the simplest solution to I, I, I tried. I, I tried to do what... <laughs> I tried to do whatever I could, but I, I, I did not sell my house to give, this guy, to give this guy money. So why don't I have to sell my house to give this guy money? So I was thinking the svara, in order to make myself feel better, the svara is that, yes, he's presenting himself to me, but he's going around from house to house. He's presenting himself to Klal Yisrael. And as a community, we have an obligation to take care of this fellow. As a community, we should take care of him. But why isn't my responsibility more than it's my neighbor's responsibility? Right? It's all of our collective responsibility, so I should do the best I can, but I don't necessarily have to go beyond what, what, uh, you know, what, what a normal person would sacrifice. And I would argue that maybe the same svara could hold true about donating a kidney, that there are enough healthy kidneys to more than supply the, uh, the need that's, that's out there. Right? Now we're good, yes, thank you. To more than supply the need that's out there. There are enough. But what, why, is it, why is it on me to do? And now let's go, just go back to the bone marrow case for a second. I would argue, using this logic, that if you're a bone marrow match, you're absolutely obligated to give. Absolutely obligated. Because that's mamish pikoch nefesh. There's no risk to you other than a day off from work, and that's really all it is. Maybe you take a nap the next day. The day I donated bone marrow... Huh? The day, I, the day I donated uh, bone marrow, I, I, my, my wife said to me, you know, we have a family wedding in Montreal the next day. The Berman family is uh, relatives of ours, so, you know, some of you must know Josh Berman. He's, yeah. so, uh, the, the, uh, so his brother Daniel Berman um, was, was getting married in Montreal the next day, and we were driving to Montreal the next day. So my wife said to me, you can go save the world or do whatever it is you're doing today, but you are driving to Montreal tomorrow. So I said, okay, fine. So I woke up 3 in the morning to beat the traffic. Ridiculous. I drove to Montreal. When I got there, I took a nap. I was probably going to take a nap anyway. You know? Now I had a good excuse. My wife took care of the kids all day. You know, so I was fine. I was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. To go through that in order to save someone's life, I, I don't think there's a shayla that, that you have to do that. Someone told me that Rabbi Tendler disagrees. Uh, so I'm not one to take on Rabbi Tendler. He certainly knows a lot about, a lot more about medicine than, than I do. I'm not sure why he would disagree. But I think, like, why is bone marrow different than a kidney? Because in bone marrow, with bone marrow, if you're a match, you are very likely that person's only match. You are very likely that person's only chance to survive. But if you have the Isra of Lo Amor Adam why should it matter if everyone can do it? It's a din on you, not, it's not you not to stand by. Right. So the question is, what is considered standing by? Right? So you could argue in that case, you're not standing by and doing nothing. You're, you're trying to, you know, to spread the word. You're on Facebook. You know, they do all these publicity campaigns. I don't know if that would be a violation of Los Amin al-Dam Reacha to not, uh, to not cut your body open and give one of your organs. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, you have to also take into account another difference between bone marrow and kidney donation is that kidney donation, your, your, your kidney's never coming back. Right? Bone marrow will regenerate itself. So you're, you're going to be... Mom is no worse for the wear. Now, it's true, you, you function perfectly fine on one kidney. And for that reason, I would argue, uh, I spoke to a man about this who donated a kidney, Daniel uh, Mann, um, so uh, he, he, he donated a, a, a kidney. Uh, we, 
Are you related or? No, it's down there. What? <laughs> okay, so he, 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 he was, we had a discussion about whether donating a kidney is considered sakhanas even. I mean, let's say it was someone needed a left, my left arm in order to survive. They say, uh, oh, yeah, we need it, or a left pinky even. Right? They need my left pinky in order to survive. Do I, do I have to give up my left pinky in order for them to survive? So Radvaz says, chasachota, for that as well. You don't have to give up an aver, a limb, in order to save somebody else. So is giving up a kidney sakana's aver? I would argue no. Because sakana's aver means you're losing functionality. You donate a kidney, you're functioning as a regular person. You can do exercise. The only thing you can't do is you can't do boxing, and you can't do, like, tackle football, because they're afraid to trauma to the other, of trauma to the other kidney. Normally, someone who boxes or does... Uh, or, or plays tackle football, aside from the head injuries, but if, if one kidney gets uh, destroyed, at least they have the other kidney to rely on. So you, you always have to, uh, so you have to be, like, only that much more careful. But, but otherwise, exercise, everything, you're totally fine. Um, so I hear that, that, that question, that why isn't it Lassam Radamrech? But I still think that even though it's not Sakhana but it is cutting your body open and, and, and removing an, an organ. It's hard to say that that would be, failure to do that is Lassam how can we compare uh, donating money to the donating of a kidney? Because the donating money, I get how we all have a field and we can all give a part and then together probably so we'll get to the $250,000. The donating a kidney, we can't all donate part of a kidney. There needs to be one person. Good. To to, the whole that, that's a very important chilek. That's a very good chilek. But nevertheless, it doesn't have to be me. But then if everyone thinks like that, no one will That's true. And that's, that's, that's fair. That's, that's absolutely fair. Uh, I'm trying to come up, I'm, I'm reaching here. For a svara, why it's not a chiv. But that's, that's a fair argument against my svara. Uh, what are the other svaras that you don't have to go through that kind of pain in order to save somebody else's life? I'm not sure about that. How much pain do you have to go through in order to not violate a losase? Right? So we know how much money you have to give. How much money do you have to give in order to not violate a losase? All of it. All of it, right? So how much pain do you have to go through? Uh, it's very hard to measure, but probably if someone would ask you, would you be willing to go through this pain or have me take all of your money, right? If you would say, I'd rather go through that pain than have you take all of my money, then probably you value that pain as uh, less than all of your money. So if you're avoiding the losase of losam al-damreach, if you're going to assume it's losam al then, uh, you know, or even if, if someone would say 20% of your money, would you be willing to go through the pain of surgery, the uh, discomfort of uh, the week or two that it takes to recuperate from the surgery, um, or, or lose 20% of your money? Many people would be willing to take those two rough weeks rather than lose 20% of their money. So I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the pain and the, you know, to argue sakana, we said Sakana is 1 in 5,000, but it could be that Sakana is defined as, not by percentages, but Sakana is defined, that Sakana is defined by what people consider dangerous. What people consider dangerous? You, you call your mother, you tell her, oh, I'm having a great time here in Israel, we have a break this weekend, so I'm going skydiving. <laughs> and she's like, you, well, you, you're doing what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going skydiving, jumping out of a plane, you know, <coughs> skydiving. And uh, she says, uh, no, that's dangerous. And you say, no, don't worry, the skydiving instructor told me that it's more dangerous to cross the street. You know, that's what they say, right? It's more dangerous, the most dangerous part of skydiving is getting in the car on the way to the skydiving place, right? <laughs> the most, the, uh, it's more dangerous to drive a car than it is to go skydiving. But, but your mother will probably not be comforted 
Right? She will say, no, that, jumping out of a plane seems dangerous. You should not do that. So it could be that danger is, so, is, is defined by what people consider dangerous rather than what actually uh, statistically is considered dangerous. So Shafta tells when he was a little boy, they used to have these drills, because they were always afraid of the Russians attacking. So they would have these drills where they had to shut off every light in the entire city in case a Russian plane would come overhead and see lights, they would know where to, where to drop a bomb. So they used to have these, uh, these, these drills where they would shut off every light in the whole city when a siren would sound, and they would all hide under their, uh, their furniture or whatever, <laughs> under their beds and desks and things. That, that was their, uh, you know, that, and, and, and said it would often happen on Shabbos. So, do you define that as a reasonable sakana? Meaning, is that a reasonable chance of sakana? So, that was the big debate at, at that time. But it's not based on statistically what the chances are, but maybe based on what people consider dangerous. People consider surgery a traumatic, dangerous event. And if that's the case, then maybe, maybe, something sakana, but it's hard. One in five thousand. Ah, so the, another argument is, what, what if you need that kidney? Let's say your kidney fails later. So medically, if a person has kidney failure, both of his kidneys fail. Now it's true, having two kidneys functioning at 40% is a lot better than having one kidney functioning at 40%. But in most civilized countries, a kidney donor is top of the list for, if, if ever he needs one, he goes straight to the top of the list to receive a kidney. I'm told, although it's hard to imagine, that there are people that donate a kidney in order to have it as an insurance policy <laughs> in case they ever have kidney failure, that they know that they're now on top of the list in case it would ever happen. So it's an argument, but not, not a particularly compelling argument in terms, of, uh, in terms of that. So, okay, let's assume now that maybe it's not a chiyuv, but it's a mitzvah gedola. It's a very, very great mitzvah to donate a kidney, right? Let's, let's assume that that's the case. I think that's what, if you were to ask all your abayim and, and your postim, I think they would all tell you, a mitzvah gedola, a really wonderful mitzvah to do. And, um, you know, I, I certainly know many people who've done it and uh, are very happy that they've, that they've done so. Um, so now, let's get to the guy's actual shayla, right? What, what's his actual shayla? Is there a preference? <coughs> so the truth is, it's an explicit Mishnah that there's a preference. Anyone know where the Mishnah is? Does that have to give it to a man for a woman? Man for where is it? Where's the Mishnah? Horios. Horios, good. Mishnah and Horios goes through. You know, there have to be rules about this. Every hospital has to have rules about this. Because there are triage situations where you're going to have to give to one person over another, right? So, so there have to be rules. So the Mishnah has rules. And the Mishnah says for something we prefer men over women, something women, some things women over men, depending on how uh, great the indignity suffered would be. Uh, we're not going to go through all the details. Kohen kodem levi, levi kodem Yisrael. Tabuchachem kodem lamaaretz. So, like, do, do hospitals function like that? Imagine, a bunch of beds are coming into the, you know, a bunch of people coming in in an emergency situation, the emergency room. Quick, get someone to give them a bechina. We need to find who the Talmud Chacham is, so we can save him first. So we don't do that in hospitals. Why don't we do that in hospitals? It's terribly inefficient. We're probably going to lose some lives if we do that. And, like, certainly in America, if we tried to do that, there would be programs the next day, and the Jewish community in America would be done, right? So obviously we can't do that in hospitals. But with a kidney, you can do that, technically, because no one will fault you. No one will fault you for, for not donating a, donating a kidney at all. Nor will anyone ever fault you for donating, donating a kidney to the person you want to give it to. 
No one says if a person, let's say, if a person's father, this guy in my shul, uh, Ethan Baraf, who donated a kidney to his father, right? So no one says, oh, come on, why do you have to give it to your father? Why don't you give it to someone else? And no one says that. Everyone understands that it's, it's your kidney. You give it to whoever you want to give it to, and certainly you're going to give it to family first. And Cloud Israel is a very big, you know, I first thought that this entire organization of renewal was, 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 was running the risk of being a big Chalasha. Because it's only organizing kidney donations for Jewish people. I was very nervous. Like, what happens when the rest of the world sees that? That we're not giving to them. We're only giving to Jewish people. And then I found out what happens. There's a doctor in um, Cornell, an African-American fellow, Dr. Watkins, I think his name is, who he does, he does kidney surgeries every Tuesday and Thursday. He's doing surgeries. And all these, like, 26-year-old Hasidim are coming in and giving their kidneys to, like, these 65-year-old non-religious Jews, conservative Jews or reformed Jews or unaffiliated Jews, who they've never met before. And he's seeing this keseder, one after the other. And and he's blown away by this. Why are they doing this? It's called altruistic kidney donation. Giving to someone without knowing the recipient. And, And he's blown away by it. And he realizes because the Jewish community cares for each other. So he tries to start a similar organization in the neighborhood that he grew up in, which happened to be Harlem. He tried to start in the African-American community that he grew up in, a similar organization, where they take care of their own. Is there a better example of Orla Goyim than that? Meaning it's not a Chil Hashem. We're, we're demonstrating how it's done. This is how you take care of family. And if you ever want to feel good about being a Jew, I mean, I'm sure you feel good about being a Jew all the time. You know, in the United States... This is an unbelievable statistic. What percentage of people in the United States are Orthodox Jews? Orthodox Jews. So I don't know the exact number. I would say something like 0.2% of the, let's say, of the United States population is Orthodox Jewish. What percentage of altruistic kidney donors in the United States are Orthodox Jewish? Between 15 and 20% of altruistic kidney donors in the United States are Orthodox Jewish. I mean, that is... That's why. That's, that's the incredible success. That's great. Okay, so now, going back to this mission. So should we just pass like the mission? Find the Kohen Tamachacham, let him, let him give to the Kohen Tamachacham. So I thought not. And not only did I think not, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to ask the question. I brought the Shailah to Rav Yitzhak Zilberstein and to Rav Avigdor Nevensal, because I was in Eretz Yisrael when I got the Shailah. It was uh, last, I, I guess it must have been last May or something, I came, right, when did I come there? Uh, I came like to April, May, sometime after Pesach, I came. And uh, so I happened to have been here, so I had uh, the opportunity to ask Rav Nevensal and Rav Zilberstein. So no, why not? Rav Nevensal agreed with me, Rav Zilberstein did not. In general, I trust Rav Nevensal's Shikola Das more anyway, especially when it agrees with me. Um, so wh- wh- why not? Follow the Mishnah. No one's going to blame you for following the Mishnah. You give to whoever you want. Isn't it better to save it on the Chach? So I'll give you a mashal. What's the Mishnah talking about? You're walking by a body of water, and there are two people uh, drowning in the water, flailing away. Right? And one person is um, reciting uh, Gemara Balpet, because you know, he's trying to get all the Talmud Torah in before he dies. And the other person is cursing like a sailor. Right? So there you have your Talmud Chacham Yeramaretz, let's say. Right? Reacting differently to their current predicament. So the Mishnah says, okay, save the Talmud Chacham before the Amaretz. But what if the case were a little bit different? You're walking by, 
And there's one guy that's flailing away and he's drowning. And he's cursing. But a Jewish guy. And the other guy is a Rosh Yeshiva. But he's like Michael Phelps. He's like just swimming back and forth. He has no way out. He's going to need someone eventually to rescue him. But he's good for a few hours. Like he's just going to be, you know, he's just going to be going back and forth. Who do you save? You can only save one of them right now. Who do you save? The normal. The, the one that's flailing and is going to die right now. Because there's a chance that someone else will come along for the other guy. When it comes to, to, to choosing who the recipient should be, I think there's only one question you ask. What's that question? Who needs it most? That was my svar. I later found that Rav Moshe writes explicitly in the tshuva that, uh, that in, in all these triage cases, the assumption is that everything else is equal. But if not everything else is equal in terms of chances to save the other person, that will actually work on the other person. Meaning, let's say for one person you have a very small chance of success in saving him, and the other person you have a very high chance of success. You would not give the, if the Talmud were the one with the low chance of success, you would not save the Talmud first. Or in this kind of case where someone is uh, more in need than the others, in more immediate need, you would save the person who's more in the more immediate need. I, I asked him something what he thought about that. He said he disagrees. He said that uh, he said the Mishnah tells us that it's a bigger mitzvah to save a Talmud Chacham than to save an Amaretz. So he said, look, it's your kidney. You can uh, do a smaller mitzvah if you want. It's also a mitzvah, but you only get one chance to do this mitzvah. So, you know, you can do a smaller mitzvah if you'd like, but it's, it's, it's a bigger mitzvah to save a Tamachach. So he said, you know, I'm not saying you have to do it at all. So you're obviously allowed to choose to do the smaller mitzvah. So he, he was willing to give you that leeway, but he still thought it was a bigger mitzvah. Um, it didn't sit well with me. Again, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to ask the question. I would bet, you know, I'm not a Talmud of Yeshivat Haritzion. I would bet if someone would have asked Ravami Tal as a Kuril of Racha, uh, he, he would have said that the question should, should never even occur to you to ask. Of course, you, say, you save a person who's desperate. I, I would bet. I don't know. You could ask your Rebbeim if that's what, that's what he would say. That, that, would be, that would be my bet. So I, I told him, not only that, I know a fellow who donated a kidney to a non religious person, and the person found out that it was an Orthodox rabbi who donated the kidney. And, uh, and, and, and on the way back from the hospital, he purchased for himself a pair of tefillin. And he was inside wearing tefillin every day. So I said, you know, you can make some sort of impact on a, on a person like that. So uh, Zilberstein said, tell, tell the guy he should call the, the recipient back and say that I also want my kidney to be Shomer Shabbos. I happen to know a guy, a fellow in the Sanal Feller from Farakway, who donated a kidney, and he told the person, I really want my kidney, you know, my kidney never ate non-kosher before. Like, so kidneys don't eat, but, you know, he said, my, my kidney never ate non-kosher before, so I want, I want my kidney to only have uh, kosher food, and the person was macabre to only eat kosher for the rest of their lives. So, okay, you can have, but I'm not sure that that would, you can't make those demands or expectations, uh, or have those expectations, but I, I'm not sure that that would make a difference in Allah anyway. So, bottom, bottom line, end of the day, let's just at least deal with this shayla, because I'm going to have to get going, I have to give it a shir of chashmanayim this evening, so uh, uh, let's, 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 uh, let's, let's wrap it up right now, I'm sorry for going 20 minutes over, but I was told that I am supposed to. So, uh, when it came to this fellow, I said, tell, tell renewal whoever needs it most. Right, and that's, that's who they'll give it to. And I think I'm very confident that that's the right thing to do. Good. What about the, other, the woman with the bone marrow situation? What should she do? Should she give the day before an Arabian Kippur? Or should she give a week early? Now does she have to fast? 
I spoke to Rav David Feinstein about this. He said, you don't have a complicated question over here. You have two very simple questions. He said, one very simple question is, should you do that which can have a better chance of saving a person's life or a less good chance of saving a person's life? Obviously, you do that which has a better chance of saving a person's life. And then you have a question, someone's not feeling well, should they fast in Yom Kippur? How should they handle the fact that they're not feeling well in Yom Kippur? He said, you're a rabbi, you deal with that, Shaila, every, you know, every year. So figure that out. You know, do whatever you do in terms of uh, that situation. And he, he's obviously 100% right. So it, it happens to be at the end of the day with that story, the woman got a tooth infection and they, they canceled her as a candidate for a tooth infection. They said, uh, they comp- I guess it compromised her immune system. They, 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 wouldn't, uh, they, wouldn't take, they wouldn't take her bone marrow. So it ended up not, not happening in the end of the day anyway. But uh, hopefully, uh, we're not going to get to the other, the other Shaila, but uh, hopefully what we gained a little bit of an appreciation. First of all, it's not just the, uh, the chesed of Am Yisrael and how we look out for each other and the kinds of things that, uh, that we would talk about that in other communities, they wouldn't... I remember when I gave bone marrow, the woman in the hospital said to me, um, who's, the, who's the recipient? Who are you giving to? I said, I don't know. I was a match for somebody, so I'm giving. They, they thought like I was the biggest tzaddik in the world for, like, for giving up a day to save a life, like a, a, a real human you know, life, it, it, the, the level of what we expect of ourselves is, uh, is, is a very, very lofty level. And in that sense, we are, in fact, an Arlagayim. We are Bali Chesed, and, that's, uh, and we care for each other. And we care for all people. We care for all of humanity, and that's for sure. Rav Weiss has told me he believes there's a mitzvah to love every human being. Love, not, not just respect, treat with dignity, love every human being. But one is allowed to love their family more than they love others. And Klal Yisrael is family. So these are things that we do for, for a family. But it also hopefully gave you a little bit of an insight into the halachic process and the complexity of what seems like a very, uh, very simple question and what, what one might have considered a matter of, uh, of choice, personal choice, rather than a matter of, uh, of halacha. I'll take questions if there are any. Also, if there's anyone that's interested in land, I'm happy to talk about that as well before I have to run out. But. Would it make any difference if giving um, me it might. You know, I don't think you have to ask that question. No, because we assume that almost everybody's a Tinnik Shmishpah, in, in America at least. But anyone who's, uh, who's not religious, we assume is pretty much a Tinnik So, uh, So we, we don't have to ask that question. We just assume. Yeah. What about donating blood? Okay, I have an article on donating blood. I'm actually, if you Google me, I'm on David Duke's website. Um, because, uh, <laughs> because I, in my donating blood article, when I was explaining why I think it's a really wonderful thing to do, I quoted those who, Poskin, who suggested not to donate blood to non-Jews. And he took snippets of those citations and said, look, the Jewish people are uh, racist and whatever. So I am the symbol of racism of the Jewish people. Um, but, you know, with enemies like David Duke, I think I'm okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't mean everyone... You shouldn't, like, increase the traffic to David Duke's website. <laughs> you know, but, but trust me, it's there. Um, so donating blood, um, you know, when there's a trauma and a specific need, probably a chiyuv. But when there's no specific need, just a really nice thing to do. The, the, the bigger shayla with donating blood is, you know, to give to a Jew for sure. The bigger shayla is giving to a general blood bank that's for everybody, Jews and non-Jews, in America at least. They say that Rav Nevinsah, like, used to, when he was younger, I guess, would donate blood 
as frequently as was permissible. Like they wouldn't take from you more than once every six weeks, so he would just <laughs> give blood every six weeks because he had the opportunity to save Jewish lives. In, in the United States, my argument was, and Rav Shechter agreed, was that... Um, it only, it's only still my argument because Rav Shechter said it's correct, right? That... that uh, the system, the blood banks are there for everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike. And having a system that benefits everybody equally, we're supposed to participate in that system as full participants, right? So it's not about los and giving to a non-Jew. We're, we're giving to a system that benefits all of us, and we're members of a larger society that benefit from that system, and therefore we should contribute to that system as well. So that's the, the bottom line when it comes to donating blood. How do I choose which post scheme to ask when? How do I choose? So Rav Zilberstein, when it's a really fun shilin, I think he'll write it up in one of his svarim, but usually not when I need a psak halacha. Uh, um, it's just, he comes from a totally different place. His whole way of thinking about things is so different than everything I was trained in, but he's a lot of fun to talk to. So, uh, and, and he knows a, a ton. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's very fascinating. But generally, I, I go to, um, you know, poskim that, uh, that, that I connect with in the, their way of thinking and in their sense of, you know, bigger picture morality issues, Rav Asher Weiss, Rav Mordechai Willig, Rav Herschel Schechter, they're, they're pretty much along the same, the same lines of, of thinking. You know, if I happen to be in Nativ or a Kotel and Rav Nevensal is there, so it's an opportunity to talk to Rav Nevensal. So I'll uh, ask him, but not necessarily because I need the psak from him, you know, particularly, but usually you go to those who, you know, who trained your way of thinking and you can see eye to eye with. You know, I've, I, I met someone in, uh, in Lakewood recently, and um, I'm very cuff to my rebellion because they are really, really great, and I'm really, really not. You know, like I recognize the gap between me and my rebellion. So I, so I always quote Marty Vrabi of Shech, Marty Vrabi of Blue, Marty Vrabi of Sex. You know, I'm always, so I, I met a guy from Lakewood, and he said, Oh, you know what we call you in Lakewood? We call you Marty Vrabi. I'm like, really? Wow, like, I was like so honored. Like, in Lakewood, they got Y.U. Torah, and they consider me their Rebbe. And he's like, oh, no, no, I should have explained. Um, we call you Mori Virabi because you're always quoting Mori Virabi of Shechter, Mori Virabi of Zach, Mori Virabi of Willi. And, like, we think it's funny because no one actually refers to the Rebbeim that way, so we make fun of you. We call you Mori oh, this is the Mori Virabi guy. <laughs> I get deflated, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, that's how I uh, generally go. You go to the Rebbeim that you know... Uh, Trusted. Yeah. Um, what's the rationale for a hierarchy of saving in the mission or emergency? You need some rules. There has to be some rules. Every every hospital has rules of triage. So that's those are our rules. To figure out why uh, why they make sense. There's some of them the, the Rishonim discuss. Why is it that when it comes to collecting tzedakah to go door to door, we'd rather have a man do that than a woman because it's beneath a woman's dignity. So we'd rather, if we have a limited amount of funds, we'd give it to a woman and make a man. Right? That's my rule when collectors come. If there's a woman, she'll definitely get much more quickly than than than, than a man because it's very undignified. Um, you know, there are there there are svaros in terms of that. You know, someone else said, how come we don't have uh, you know, give to the youngest person because they can live the longest. So those cheshbonos we don't make. It's interesting, why not? But probably in many hospitals they probably do. If an 80-year-old comes in with a, with a medical need and a 12-year-old comes in with a medical need, they probably do, do prioritize the 12-year-old in many places. I don't know, but um, you need rules. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's total chaos. What, what about the people who are sitting on the side of the street like, asking for money? Do you have to give to them? 
if a non-Jerusalem side street asking for money? Yeah. In America. I mean, the halacha is that uh, it's appropriate, it's not wrong to give to, and it's right to give to Aniyei Akum. Because Darkei Shalom, you show that we also uh, participate. But you don't have to give to every, to every panhandler. Once in a while, like anybody else would, you would give to them. You certainly shouldn't give them tremendous, they're not a priority in tzedakah. No, it's, it's tzedakah. In general, for those types of situations, always better to give them a thing, like a food, piece of food or drink rather than money. A lot of these people are there because they don't know how to handle money, and they may use it on the wrong things. Um, I remember once a friend of mine, who I'm going to see in about an hour from now, who made Aliyah since then, told me he was walking down Central Avenue, and a person says, some uh, tzedakah, he says, oh, I, I, I'm going into a store now. Tell me what you'd like me to buy you. I'll buy you, I'll buy you lunch. And the fellow says, ooh, can you go to Starbucks, get me a double latte with that? Like, he had a very specific <laughs> Starbucks offer. <laughs> like, it was like a $6 drink. He's, he's, he's like, you know what, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't buy that for myself. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not buying your $6 latte. Um, so, yeah, but... I'm uh, trying to say in the... Okay, have a great day, everybody. A great evening.